Thanks very much, Joan. Not only will I be uh, having fun, a bit of ministry in there also. I received an email this week from the couple that I'm staying with in Canada. I've stayed with them two or three times previously. And they said, favour, favour, favour. I said, what's that? And they said, uh, Fred said, Neil, our senior pastor, is going to go away for a month's holiday. And so... The four Sundays he's away, they have rostered four members of the church to preach. Just so happens that the Sunday that you're with us is the Sunday that I've been rostered on. Any chance, brother, any chance? I said, yes, for sure. So that'll be Sunday week, preaching in a Mennonite church in Langley in British Columbia, about 250 come Pray the Lord will touch their lives. So not only fun, bit of ministry as well. Okay, we're continuing to go through the Beatitudes, and this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. As with the other Beatitudes that we've looked at so far, Jesus speaks strong language here. He's not just throwing something out to the crowd that they can just say, well, that's a nice warm thought, but he's actually presenting a challenge to them. He's actually speaking directly into their lives, saying this, oh, happy, oh, happy you will be. Oh, what bliss if you are hungry and thirsty to be rightly related to God, for you shall be filled to bursting point. I doubt if uh, many of us, particularly over the last few decades, have experienced extreme hunger. I would say that most likely, isn't it, it's the opposite of that. Remember Sizzlers? And if you like me, right, every time I went to Sizzlers, I would say to myself, Neil, do not fill up on that cheese bread, right? There's other stuff more to come. There's other stuff. Neville Callum used to tell me that whenever he went to Sizzlers, he always used to have dessert first because he'd say, Neil, Jesus might come back in the middle of the meal and I'm not going to miss out on dessert. So he'd always have dessert first. I think that's hilarious, hilarious. Miss a meal or two, isn't it true? And we start to feel those hunger pains in our stomach. For a number of years, I used to travel over to New Zealand and I would spend a week with their adventure Bible school students that would be going outdoor stuff and taking a session with them in the morning through the scriptures and doing some teaching and then going whitewater rafting or caving or abseiling the rest of the day and then just before dinner having another session with them as well. And it always used to be in the program, the six-week program, I'd only go just for one week, that at the end of my week, that would be on the Friday, they would take me back to the Bible school and that I would teach there the following week. But on that middle weekend, when I was back at the Bible school, the students on Adventure Bible School, they would do their solo. And their solo meant going out, they would be portioned a particular place in a paddock somewhere, surrounded by sheep, alone, for 48 hours, a little bit of shelter, but not too much, two litres of water and three or four muesli bars and their Bible and a shovel and a roll of toilet paper. And they were to stay in that one place and a staff member would check on each one of them. They could see others, but they'd be a fair, a fair way away. 
and the staff member would check on them each day of the Saturday and Sunday to make sure that they were okay. If they were in emergency, they could wave to their friend who was some distance off that they were in trouble in some way. And all they were given was three or four muesli bars for the whole 48 hours. I'm now back at the Bible school. I'm up in the guest room. I'm staying not in a single bed, not in a queen-size bed, but in a king-size bed with my own bathroom and the white fluffy towels and chef preparing three meals a day for the Bible school students, looking out the window when it was cold and windy and showery and thinking of these students alone, out there in a paddock surrounded by sheep. Nothing else except to think, pray, meditate on the Lord. Wonderful, wonderful experience. Have you ever had an experience in your life when you have been famished, really hungry? I would doubt perhaps if many of us have. A relative of mine told me that he had been captured in the Second World War had been placed in a POW camp and told me that he was so hungry he ate his shoelaces. I can't think, I can't imagine what that's like. And I asked him and I said, what change did that bring to you? And he said, from then on, he said, I cannot see food being wasted in any way. He said, it just gets to me that there are so many people in the world who are hungry and we waste so much. What about thirsty? Thirsty, have you ever been so thirsty that you've just been desperate just to have a little bit, just a few drops of water? A friend of mine recently went mountain bike riding in Daisy Hill and told me that it was a really hot day, he was exhausted, he actually couldn't go any further and so he just fell to the side and sat on a rock there trying to regain his composure as sweat was pouring down his face, didn't take any water with him. And another guy turned up who had two litres of water, poured one litre of water over his head and then gave him the other litre to drink. And he said to me, and said to me, Neil, I've never ever been so thirsty in all my life. It said that when someone's crawling through the desert and they're crying out, water, water, in fact, that doesn't actually occur because if you're so thirsty, your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth and all you can do is say, ah, ah, ah. So Jesus' words, oh, what bliss, oh, what happiness to be so hungry, to be so thirsty for the righteousness of God, for you shall be filled. Must have stuck into the minds of the crowd who were listening to Jesus that day. Many, of course, who would only survive by working today, having enough to eat tomorrow. They would have known what hunger was like much more than we do. Righteousness, says Jesus, can be like that. It can satisfy your hunger and your thirst to the point where you are completely satisfied. When a person is so hungry for righteousness, when a person is so thirsty for righteousness, that when it is offered and received, that person can actually say, there is nothing more that I want. 
I am fully satisfied. I picture a gazelle up there in the hills and it can smell the water, the rain that's recently come down in the pool of the valley. And so this gazelle runs with all its might just to reach that pool and to taste of the water. And Jesus says a person can be like that. A person can be so blessed that they are satisfied and contented. Of course, the verse that comes to mind is Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You hungry for righteousness? You thirsty for righteousness? Writing this sermon this week, I had to challenge myself and ask, pause and ask myself, Neil, are you really? Are you really that hungry? Are you really that thirsty? Of course, the answer to that question depends on our definition of what righteousness is. If we think righteousness of being some kind of joy killer, rules and regulations that must be obeyed, denying ourselves of all the pleasures of life, living in constant denial, self-denial of everything that we would like to do, disapproving of anything and everything that has a hint of fun about it, beating ourselves to death, thinking because we're exposed, our wrongdoing is exposed by the commandments of thou shalt not, abstaining from all delights of life. Who wants to live like that? That's not righteousness. Thankfully, that's not what Jesus was talking about. He didn't say blessed are those who are righteous. He said blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. How thankful we are that Jesus did not say Blessed are those who are righteous. Not me. Can't count me in that lot, that's for sure. So the solution is found in what righteousness is. I want you to think for a moment of a person alive today whom you would really like to meet. Someone who you really admire. Someone who you think, Wow, what an opportunity if I got to meet this person. You have somebody in mind? Now imagine for a moment that I'm able to introduce you to that person. I've thought for a long time how great it would be to know somebody really famous. But not just, you know, know of them, but to really be best friends with them. Taylor Swift. I know you've spent the last week on the internet trying to get those tickets. I know you have. I know you have. <coughs> Imagine I was talking with you one day and you said, Neil, I've spent hours and I haven't been able to get any tickets. And I said, oh, tickets for what? And you go, well, Taylor Swift. Taylor, Taylor. Oh, you mean Tay-Tay? Oh, I know Tay-Tay. Let me call her now. And so I pick up my phone and I call Tay-Tay. Tay-Tay, how are you doing? Oh, Neil, it's wonderful to see you. I'm coming down to Australia in February. I'm going to make sure I have time to come and see you, Neil. Oh. And then me saying to you, 
do you want to have a chat to Tay-Tay? She's a good friend of mine. She can become a good friend of yours also. You'd be like, what, what, what? Neil knows, Neil knows that person. Dream on. Get back onto the internet. If I was, just let's think hypothetically, if I was able to do that, and you not only met the person, not necessarily Taylor Swift, but you met the person that you had in your mind that you would really like to meet, someone whom you admire, and I was able to introduce to you to them, and you two became best friends, then it could be said that you two are rightly related, rightly related, not just an acquaintance, but are rightly related. And this comes into our definition of righteousness. The word itself is, is difficult to translate into English because it has three different meanings. One meaning is to be morally upright, is to be good. And I think that probably most of the time when we hear that word righteousness, that's what we think, that's what we equated with. Someone who is morally upright, someone who is good. Abraham, Abraham, having been told by God that God was going to come down and destroy Sodom, where Abraham's nephew, nephew Lot lived, Abraham asks God this question. Will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? Now, in this situation, Abraham is asking God, right, will you destroy all the good people along with all the bad people? And so here's our first definition of righteousness, means to be good, means to be morally upright. That's what Abraham's question was. And they do this great bartering system of, you know, getting less number, less number, or fewer number, fewer number, fewer number, until God says, even if there's ten good people, ten good people. Similarly, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, What partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? So here again, right, Paul is making the contrast between someone who is morally upright, someone who is good, and someone who is lawless, someone who breaks the law all the time, or we would say somebody who is bad. So keep that definition in your mind, right? First of all, righteousness can be morally, I mean morally upright can mean good. But there are also other meanings to that word. For instance, in some instances in the scriptures, the word righteousness means to deliver, to save, to rescue. Isaiah 46, verse 13, the Lord speaking says this to Isaiah, I bring near my deliverance, same word as righteousness, it is not far off and my salvation will not tarry. So here God is saying that righteousness is going to occur when he saves, when he delivers, when he rescues those who are downtrodden and oppressed. In fact, it's this definition which occurs more in the Old Testament than the first definition that we looked at. That God is a God who is a saving God, a rescuing God, a delivering God. More than God stating that he is morally upright and that he is good 
So in the Old Testament, God is concerned not so much with displaying his character of being morally upright and good, but rescuing and saving people who need rescuing and saving. But there's also another meaning, right? So we have those two meanings. We have morally upright and good, and we have rescuing, saving, and delivering. But there's also a third meaning to this word righteousness, and occurs in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Does this mean that Abraham was such a good guy, such a morally upright guy, that God says to Abraham, you and I can experience a relationship together because of the character that you have? No, that's not the way at all. Is it that faith then can be of such a a quality that God equates it with real goodness? That God goes, you know, your faith in me, well, it's similar to you being morally upright and good, and that's enough for us to be in a right relationship. Or is it that on the account of Abraham's faith, that God treated Abraham as though he was righteous when he was not? So God was kind of, you know, uh, turning a blind eye. Well, I know, Abraham, all the faults you have, but I'm not going to think about those because you believe in me. That really doesn't sound like God's nature, does it? Is it that God is content with faith when there is no goodness? Well, the difficulty we face is trying to reconcile this How does faith equate, if it needs to, in some way, with goodness? And the solution is that it has much more in how God regarded Abraham than anything that Abraham exhibited or showed or expressed in himself. Paul uses the phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. He talks about the ministry of righteousness or the ministry of justification. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, he uses exactly the same word, but here he says that you and I, because we are reconciled to God, that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. I hope you're with me in all this, right? What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, here's our third definition of righteousness, it is in relation to relationship. Relationship. First definition, someone who is morally good and upright. Second definition, able to rescue, save, deliver. And third definition is this, is in a right relationship. If you are in a right relationship with someone, then you can be called, can be considered as being righteous. A person may be called righteous not because that they are perfect, not because they excel in goodness, not because God turns a blind eye away for the real character that they are, but that they are in relationship with him. 
And then God says of that person, you are a person of virtue because I am in a relationship with you. God chooses to regard this person as a righteous person despite their sin that they're guilty of and despite their need to repent of their sin. So here the word righteous does not describe a quality of character but a state of relationship. So we have those three definitions. The same word can be interpreted in three different ways determining by the context. Character, relationship and deliverance. When we think about God, isn't it true that in those three ways, that's how God, that's who God is. When we think of God's character, we say, God, you are righteous, you are morally upright, you are good in everything that you do. You are righteous. God, you're a saving God, you're able to rescue, you're able to deliver. You are righteous because you see those who are not righteous and you do something about it. And then in the third definition, God, you are righteous because when I come into relationship with you, you consider me to be righteous despite my sin because of the relationship that we enjoy. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose there's two people. Good friends, best of friends, love hanging out together all the time. And then something occurs between these two and there's some disharmony. There's a fracture in the relationship. There's something that's not right between the two parties, some misunderstanding. One person has wronged the other, perhaps. And so the two, we say, have fallen out of relationship. What needs to occur for that relationship to be reconciled? There needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be forgiveness that is asked for and there needs to be forgiveness that is received. And then when these two are united again, reconciled again, they are said to be in a right relationship. They are righteous with each other. But for that to occur, it means that the person who has done wrong has to recognize, I have done wrong. I am the guilty party. And they then must want the friendship of the other person so much that they're willing to go to the other person in humility, saying, I did wrong. I'm sorry. I hurt you. I know you love me. And I know that what I've done has caused you hurt, and so I come to you asking for forgiveness. Of course, it doesn't stop there, does it? The other person must offer forgiveness. If the other person doesn't offer forgiveness, then we're estranged forever. The other person must be willing to suffer the hurt, whatever it is, and put it away and, and return it with love and say, I forgive you, I forgive you. I was thinking in one sense, the person who has caused the offence, the one who has done wrong, I put myself in the place of the other person and I think, how are they feeling? What are they thinking at this time? How do they consider me? 
And if, if our friendship is so important, then I want them not to feel hurt or ashamed or for our relationship still to be estranged. In the Christian context, we call this confession and repentance. It involves more than just confessing, God, I have done wrong. It involves more than just repentance, turning away from what I've done wrong, but coming to God and seeking his forgiveness. As the offended party, I must come to him. If God does not accept me as I am, then we will never be righteous, the two of us. We will always be out of a right relationship. But if a God chooses not to condemn me, but to forgive me, then we come into relationship, the two of us. As long as it lurks in the back of God's mind, perhaps, that I have offended him and that at any point he can bring it up again and throw it back in my face. Neil, don't you realise what you did to me? That's not forgiveness. That's ignorance. Even the two of us, we might try to put it away. Oh, we're never going to talk about the topic, God. We're just going to, you know, ignore it, never bring it up. But that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is for God choosing never to remember it again. And that's what God does for us. It's extraordinary. We put our faith in Christ when we come to him in confession. God, I'm not right. I don't do what is right. The things that I want to do, I really want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. I'm charged. My friend Terry Thrupp would say, guilty, your honour. I can hear him saying those words right now. We confess our wrong, we repent of it, we come to God, but he must be the one who forgives us. And what do we find in Christ? We find that forgiveness. He chooses to remember it no more. We receive mercy. We do not receive that which should be given to us. And we receive grace. We receive that which we don't deserve. And how is this possible? All comes back to our three definitions of righteousness. Because God is morally upright and good. Because God rescues, saves and delivers. Because God wants a right relationship with us to him. He searches us out. He seeks us out. He does everything he can without violating our free will. Offering us deliverance, rescuing, salvation so that we might have a right relationship with him. Carly mentioned it, communion, Philippians chapter 3. 
Paul writes, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, am I good? No, I'm not good. Am I able to rescue and deliver myself? No way. Am I able of my own means to have a right relationship with God with him really having no part? No, that's not possible. But I have the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God that comes through faith and is based on faith. This righteousness of Christ that you and I receive, again, comes back to our three definitions, but in a different order. So when we come to God, what's the very first thing that God does? He rescues us, he saves us, he delivers us of our sin. And then the second thing, although they're really all intertwined in the same moment, the second thing that God does is he brings us into right relationship with him. And then what's the third work of God in our lives? to make us morally upright and good. You and I, as believers in Christ, we're being made into good people, made into the likeness of Christ from one degree of glory to another, writes Paul. The theological words for all this that takes part is that our righteousness is imputed and our righteousness is imparted in Christ. And so you see here the connection between relationship and character. Upon the conditions of a right relationship, the conditions are now set in place by God for a change in character to occur. And these two are inseparably linked. People who say, you know, I'm a Christian because I've been saved, I'm forgiven of my sin, but then have no knowledge or desire to grow in Christ, right, are missing out on really what God's work is in us and through us. He saves us so that we might become like Christ, good, morally upright people. This is a relationship that you and I, we enjoy and we experience with Christ in our life. That is the righteousness that Jesus spoke of to the crowd on that day. For those who did not know God, you can come to know him. He who is morally upright and good. He who rescues and saves you and delivers you to make you into the person that he has created you to be. Oh, what a state of blessedness. Oh, what joy when you hunger for that, when you thirst for that, when that's all you want in life because you shall be satisfied. Oh, how are the words of Jesus. We've been looking at these Beatitudes and the more I've been looking at them, the more I think they're not just individual statements. But what Jesus was saying, these Beatitudes are all tied together. There is a connection between them all. If you remember your Hebrew from a couple of weeks ago, four weeks ago, 
Jesus said, Blessed are the Ani, the Ana, and the Anor. Blessed are those who have nothing, who have no one, and who consider themselves as nobodies. Because if you hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God, God is there waiting for you and you shall be satisfied. And for those of us who know him, can't we say that is the meaning of life? That's when we are truly alive. When we've discovered this relationship with God, that Christ lives in us, that he wants to live his life in us and through us to make us good. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You shall be filled. Let's pray together. Lord, any here this morning who don't know you, who haven't come into a right relationship with you, Lord, may today be their day of salvation, I pray. Today, Lord, you, arms wide open, love expressed, Lord, no boundaries to your love, no, no fences to your grace, no limits to your mercy. We come to you again this morning afresh. And say, Lord, we, we give you our thanks that in Christ we can discover in you, Lord, this right relationship that we've been searching and seeking for. That we can be truly satisfied, contented, because we know you. Refresh us this day, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able to stand, I invite you to stand as we sing just a final song. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. I pray that is your heart this morning. Thanks, team.
the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit, soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who calls you is faithful and he will do this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Please be seated and uh, so welcome. If you'd like someone to pray with you this morning, some of us will be down the front. We'd love to share with you. And uh, morning tea, of course, is in the court. Yeah, don't forget to catch up with Nick. Encourage him a little bit too. That'd be terrific. God bless you. Thanks, Neil, for sharing with us this morning too, brother. Blessing.